It is extremely awesome to be with you all. Thank you for coming. It's great being in church. It's great being together. Uh, It's great having the Bible open and hearing from Jesus. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, please, would perhaps a familiar story nonetheless grip us with everything that is magnificent and glorious and beautiful about your son, Jesus, whether we know him already or have yet to encounter him as he really is. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is always bigger than our ideas about him. Jesus is always bigger than our ideas about him. I wonder if you remember Advent back in 2020, that's right, wasn't it? Uh, When we were looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, Simeon and Anna, all rejoicing at the beginning of Luke's gospel about Jesus' birth. Well, this next week in this same gospel, in the narrative of the gospel, mirroring our next week in the Christian year, explodes every human idea about Jesus. Perhaps the most intense conflict between the very best that humanity has to offer under its own understanding and ability and this God-man, Jesus, who perfectly reveals the Father in the power of the Spirit. In this passage, God shows up to his own temple. If you're watching, if you're here today and you're new to church, you're not persuaded by the Jesus thing at all, uh, this is the moment that those atheist memes sometimes talk about. So here's one just up here. This room community. Christians be like, look at all this evidence I've got that God is real. That's the kind of thing that gets all over Reddit. Sorry, it's on my face now if you're on the live stream. Um, And, you know, this is actually one of those moments. So God shows up, obviously, so everyone can see him publicly, unmistakably. Except... Things don't go the way we think they ought to at all. Things don't even go, as you look, the way that Jesus hopes they will. Although they do go exactly the way that he knew they would. This event, with all the different attitudes swirling around that ancient city of Jerusalem, brings out the different ways human beings just aren't ready for how Jesus actually turns out to be when God shows up. The guys who were there at the time had absolutely everything going for them to recognize the day of God coming to them. Jesus had even given these people their lines at this event with an ancient song still top of the charts, complete with a chorus that everyone could join in with. We kind of sung a version of it earlier today. But they still miss him. Almost unfailingly, they miss him. How can that happen? How can that be? Just as this city of Jerusalem represents the very best of human achievement, knowledge, society, everything. So the guys who react to Jesus in the passage today reveal ideas about him that actually mean they miss him when he shows up. Whether we believe in Jesus or not, all of us actually have quite strong ideas about what he ought to be like or what he ought to do. We're going to look at three of those ideas that loom large in the passage today. See again, Jesus is always bigger than our ideas about him. So first up, Jesus is bigger than our self-improvement. 
Jesus is bigger than our self-improvement, those first 11 verses. Things sort of look promising to begin with on the Mount of Olives as this living, walking, talking God gets ready to come to the city that's been the primary witness to him for centuries. The disciples and all the people he's spoken with beforehand in the village, it's, clear, it's not just he magically knows that's going to happen. It's probably just he planned it. You know, let, let's go for that. Um, they do everything he asks. Everything happens exactly as we want. You know, the donkey's ready and all that. And, and the thing to notice here is this is the first time Jesus calls himself Lord do you see that? He tells the disciples, say, the Lord needs it. And this is not just kind of a general, like, oh, a Lord. And it's not Lord of the Sabbath, as he said before, not even Son of Man, the favorite way Jesus always talks about himself up to this point. This is specifically the Lord. There's a bit of Hebrew for you. That is the word Lord in Hebrew. Jesus is making sure the Bethany crew and these two disciples know that this is when he proclaims out in the open for everyone to see who he really is. He is coming in this Yahweh, the name of the Lord. The Lord God of Israel. Yahweh, the one Adam and Eve walked with in the garden. The one who shut Noah into the ark. The one Abraham had a meal with. The one Moses met in the burning bush. The one who dwelt in the tabernacle and then in the temple above the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. The one the prophet said would come in person to this temple for judgment and redemption. The one we heard about, Zechariah 9 verse 9, it was referred to in the Saddleback Kids thing. That chapter from 540 years before says this guy will be riding on a donkey. And then later, that same prophet, Zechariah 14 verse 4 says this one will stand on the Mount of Olives. So you've got a lot of cues here, if you're willing to pay attention. And the people of the city seem to get what's happening at first. They read the signs, no problem. Maybe we're not used to them, but they certainly were. Donkey, Mount of Olives, let's put Psalm 118 full volume on Spotify. And that's when human ideas begin to take over from how Jesus actually is. Luke's already told us the mood from the passage slightly before, verse, nine, uh, verse 11 of chapter 19. The people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. We don't need Passover sacrifices anymore. Surely that's all over. Let's skip the calendar forward to the Feast of Tabernacles with all the palm branches and hosannas and renewed society stuff. This is kind of the end game, they're thinking. God's showing up, party time. Verse 37, just look at that. If you thought all those miracles were great... Just you wait for what's coming next. Mass Roman eviction, anyone? Magically making Judea top of the national league tables? Yes, please. Place it in the cabinet for whoever happens to be standing closest to the donkey. Yes. Jesus has always been about self-improvement for most of these people. They want school places and dream homes and their man in government. They want a sweet retirement. They're willing to pay for it as well and work hard. They understand that God helps those who help themselves. But Jesus, could you just sort out this little blockage that's getting in the way of my plans, please? If I hang around with you for long enough, could you could you just get to that little matter? Huge amount of Christian YouTube is full of this kind of stuff. How Jesus can help you reach your potential. Overcome anxiety, addiction, negative thinking. Why Jesus wants you to love yourself. 
how to motivate your kids to perform at school with Bible verses. Here's an inspirational video that will give you that spring in your step when the world gets you down. Prayers of, let's build back better, amen. And the thing is, this sounds so close to the real thing, doesn't it? Because Jesus is inspiring. These crowds even quote the Bible in the right way at the right time. The palm branches do pick up how Jesus is the fulfillment of all those festivals. It really is party time now he's here. All that stuff that we long for, that's not the problem. It's the rejection of Jesus' cross that goes with it. Because there's no room in the idea of Jesus as self-improvement for our life situation appearing to get worse when we throw our lot in with him. Or the humbling reality of the Christian life that we actually can't fix ourselves and that we're not in the driving seat of our growth as people. Jesus is bigger than those things. The things he's doing can and do include us, but they never revolve around us. If his choice for living our best life or being the best we can be is one that we wouldn't choose for ourselves, this idea about Jesus ends up ditching him for something else that fulfills my dreams. Luke actually gives us a story before our passage to show us the difference between the self-improvement idea of Jesus and just accepting him as he is. There's a blind man chapter 18 verse 35 to 43 who just says jesus son of david have mercy on me and he's so far from having any idea of what his future looks like he can't plan out a 12-point plan for how he's going to better himself he's completely stuck he can't do anything for himself jesus takes charge of his future gives him something amazing and then after that jesus is the center of this guy's picture forever he doesn't want anything else other than him He's like, wherever you're going, Jesus, I'm following. Choosing Jesus on Palm Sunday means accepting he's in charge of our future, whatever that might mean. Jesus is bigger than our self-improvement. Next up, Jesus is bigger than our standards. Jesus is bigger than our standards. And this is just those two verses, uh, 39, 14, chapter 19, um, then back to the section beginning verse 45 of that chapter all the way down to the end of the bit in chapter 20 enter the pharisees the guys everyone loves to hate and they don't disappoint do they we get misery guts with them telling people off for having a good time you know grumpy grumpy then we get scary jesus throwing penny pinches around while the pharisees look suitably sour-faced and flustered and then to top it off They demand an explanation, just like Mr. Banks in Mary Poppins. And Jesus gives the line, I never explain anything. Do you remember that? Oh, I love that bit. Um, He doesn't quite say that. Mary Poppins is much ruder than Jesus. But, you know, you get the idea. Um, We're not like those clowns, are we? Well, we definitely need to look again if all we see in the Pharisees are clowns and pantomime villains. Because actually, when we read this, we're like, yeah, go, Jesus, you know, stick it to the man. We love a bit of rebel. We love a bit of anti-authoritarian, you know, stuff. That is the dominant thread of every TV and film thing for the last 60 years. They always, even in Star Trek, where the Federation's supposed to be, sorry, I've been watching. I'm not going to go there. It's all right. Okay. Um, We've got to look again at what's going on here. This isn't just, you know, stick it to the man. The real issue with this group of people, the Pharisees, is that they have a strong idea of how Jesus ought to be before he shows up. 
And perhaps they got some of it from Zechariah, that passage that is fulfilled right now. So just after the donkey bit, Zechariah chapter 9, uh, verses 10 to 13. I've only got some of it here, so I need to flick to it. I'll just look it up, perhaps. I'll read the, the relevant bits. Um, I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. So that's, that's these guys. It's like, I'm going to fight the world with you. I'll rouse your son, Zion, against your son's Greece. And read for that Romans, because obviously the Romans just took over where Greece left off. And I'll make you like a warrior's sword. So that's in the prophecy. They have some justification for expecting Jesus is going to boot out the evil oppressors. But they already know Jesus isn't about that. He's not going to do it the way he should be doing it. Because he's been having a go at them for the last three years. That's why they tell the crowds to shut up. There's so much Jesus should be doing that he isn't. The one thing they're sure of is they at least have had the right approach for the last 200 years or so. Jesus, don't you want to see how our Roman Justice Committee has campaigned for better religious freedoms? Surely you're going to want to sit on the Temple Buildings Committee when you finally show up. Look at the brilliant currency initiative we have in the temple. No impure coins here with Caesar's ugly pagan face all over them. We're not going to let our gentle rulers compromise temple purity. And by the way, all the commission from that temple finance team is to redirect it back into the business. It won a small Enterprise of the Year award, actually. In fact, just you'll love this, we've got a really lovely Jerusalem Temple paperweight we think you'd like to add to your collection. 100% of the profits go to the Temple Roof Restoration Fund. The only way Jesus can be for them, with all this machinery of social justice, fundraising, giving to charity, education, spirituality, is to sponsor or enable everything that's already happening. They have standards. Jesus has to be woke enough, libertarian enough, conservative enough, fiscally sound enough, socially just enough, before they'll even give him an appointment with the new business committee in the temple. But the real Jesus tears up all our standards of true spirituality, charity, financial sense, religious purity. You can't wedge Jesus into systems that already exist. And you can't actually say he's going to revolutionize them either. Because it's all still within that world. It's still within that whole way of thinking about everything. Our society loves that. Set up systems, then tear them down and set up new ones. The system is a lie, says Tom York. Maybe none of you know him, but he does in a Radiohead song. Kill the bill, say the Bristol rioters. That's one side. Tear it all down. Or then there's more public services, build back better on the other It's all the same world, with the same emphases, fixed on things as they currently are, wishing they were a bit more like this thing over here, or wishing they stayed the way they are now. All within the possibilities of a Jesusless world. Whatever our standard of justice or plans for fixing the world, Jesus blows them wide open. He literally chucks it all out in this bit in the temple. These guys have no real plan to do the things the temple was supposed to be all about. A house of prayer, if you look at the passage, verse 46, and Luke doesn't even bother finishing the quotation, a house of prayer for all nations, because it's just so obviously not happening. The irony is so deep. The high ethical standards of the great and the good 
and the strategic influences have succeeded in preventing the witness to the living God on earth from doing the one thing it was for, giving all nations a beacon to come and know the living God. This temple is not a place where everyone, whatever nation, is welcome. It's a place where even currency with the face of a Gentile on it has to be kept out while being pocketed. The real issue with these kinds of ideas about Jesus that begin with, Jesus must deal with this first, was revealed in that bit in chapter 20. It's all just hypocrisy in the end. Any religious leader, any charity fundraiser, any social justice campaigner, any family values campaigner can see that Jesus actually perfectly tackles whatever it is they're campaigning for. Everyone wants a piece of him, even non-Christians. Everyone wants him on their team. He's the first communist, the first campaigner for human rights, a brilliant guru, a stoic philosopher, the last prophet before Muhammad, the first humanist, a great teacher, a misunderstood genius. Plenty of people who aren't Christians are happy to say all that about him. But when he appears to do something that doesn't fit with that appropriating, overarching standard, whatever it is, the question comes, who gives you the right? Which is exactly what they do. And Jesus has the same answer for them as for us. When we think we can do better than Jesus on whatever standard we're measuring him against. You know God's authority when you see it, don't you? You know God's authority. So I'm not going to fit in with what you think I ought to be. Just look at how I really am. And ask whether you can explain it away as a human thing. Jesus is bigger than our standards. Finally, going back a bit in Luke, chapter 13, verse 34, and then chapter 19, verses 41 to 44, that bit we missed out. Jesus is bigger than our self-condemnation. Jesus is bigger than our self-condemnation. How does Jesus feel about people putting their ideas of him over how he actually is? Well, he's actually told us in advance of it, long before this particular clash between the living God and human ideas about him. So Luke 13, 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. But Jesus gets even more cut up about it when it actually happens. Verse 41. As long as we choose our own ideas over Jesus, Jesus weeps over us. Because being messed up and not knowing what to do is no problem for him. The problem is always anything that stops us coming to him as our only peace and hope. A big response I've come across in evangelical churches and here at St. Mary's is feeling really bad about our attitudes and behaviours and then stopping there. We, I, am tempted to think the goal of the Christian life is to just feel bad about our hopeless addictions to pleasures and treasures, to lament about never really praying or reading our Bible, and to conclude that even when we manage it for a few seconds, we're just falling so far short of what we should be doing that we just have to feel bad again. I was tempted to feel like that after the Hebrew series, thinking I never fix my eyes on Jesus the way I should. 
Often when I hear, fix your eyes on Jesus, I try and catch my eyes in the mirror and see which direction I'm looking. (laughs) The thing is, Jesus rejects that idea about him too, that he wants us to just feel bad about how bad we're doing. And Zacchaeus shows us. Zacchaeus comes just before this. It's all about Jesus being kinder and gladder about even our tiniest shows of willing than we can imagine. The thing that makes him saddest is not when we fail or do things wrong. It's when we turn away from him ashamed. When anything, particularly feeling we're a disappointment to him, stops us coming to him with open arms saying, Jesus, take me as I am, wherever you want me to go. Self-condemnation is so often the last stronghold of ideas about Jesus that we cling to. Instead of enjoying discovering him every day to be bigger and kinder and more able to help with our feelings and fears than we could have ever dreamed. If any one of these people had realized these ideas were stopping them from actually coming to him and said, Jesus, my thinking about this stuff is messed up. I think you ought to be like this. And at the moment you're like this. But I know I want you. I'm confused. Can you just help me? He would take them under his wings. He would give them a bear hug and say, it's all right. You're safe with me. You're safe with me. On Netflix at the moment, there's a show called The Good Place. Do not go there for theological advice. It's a car crash. Uh, But there is one moment, uh, which is on the screen, where a character who has been wrestling with philosophical questions all his life writes this note to himself. He says, there is no answer, but Eleanor is the answer. And we're all meant to go, ah. And and just this is the sign that our culture knows about Jesus. But they they just don't want to write, Jesus is the answer. They want to write a relationship. And then, of course, it's massively disappointing when it comes. But actually, that attitude, that attitude of saying, actually, when we try and fix it ourselves, there is no answer. No, no, Jesus is the answer. That's what the blind man and Zacchaeus say. Jesus is always bigger than our ideas about him. So let's come to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please would nothing ever stop us from coming to Jesus as he really is. Please would this Holy Week be a chance for each of us to do that without fear of condemnation, totally entrusting ourselves to him. In his name I pray. Amen.